Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Time. The rest of you can open your Bibles to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12, and before I start this morning, I do want to reiterate the announcement I made last week, in case you were not here, Marcy, our children's director, who's been children's director for over five years now, just feels led of the Lord to step down from that position to spend more time with her family, and so uh, she will be transitioning out of being our children's director, and so we are in the process of creating a children's team in the transition time, so if you feel led to be part of that team, would you come see me, or maybe even come see Marcy, and maybe God's even calling you here this morning to possibly be the next leader of our children's ministry. I'm not sure what God's doing in your heart, but I just wanted to reiterate that this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 12, we're actually going to be in verses 15 through 17, but we've got to back up, because last week, what did we see? The catastrophic consequences of David's life unraveling. Before his very eyes. If you remember the soap opera that we looked at last week where Amnon had lust over his sister Tamar and he raped her and then he kicked her to the curb as damaged goods and then Absalom, the other brother, came and took up vengeance and had Amnon killed and then he had to flee for his life. And as we saw last week in 2 Samuel chapter 13, no one is acting righteous in Israel. The men have abdicated their leadership. The men are either acting lustful, exploitative, manipulative, passive, or vengeful. And the only voice of reason, the only voice of godliness is from this silenced virgin girl who was treated so poorly and so violently. And no one listens to her. And this is a direct result of God's promise to David because of his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. So let me just remind you of what Nathan the prophet said to David after his major sin back in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Let's pick up in verse 10 because this sets the context for everything else that happens that we're going to look at this morning. Verse 10, Nathan the prophet says to David, now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you've despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. God will discipline his wayward children to bring them back home. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Now, I don't want you to raise your hand here, but have you ever experienced the discipline of the Lord in your life? Have you ever had to experience those catastrophic consequences of sin that begin to unravel in your family and in your relationships? 
where things just spiral out of control? Have you seen these types of sins damage your relationships with others? And here's what often happens. After periods of severe sin, and maybe you've been there before, after periods of severe sin, what are we often tempted to think? We often are tempted to wonder, has God abandoned me? Does God still love me? Has God forsaken me? Have I done so evil and so wicked that that I am out of God's good graces forever? And has God disciplined me because He loves me or is this really because He hates me? Here's the big idea for today's message and we're going to see it span three chapters. We've got a lot of ground to cover this morning. Don't worry, we're not going to be here as long as you think we will. Here's today's point. In the midst of the catastrophic consequences of sin, God still sovereignly works to preserve His wayward children. So here's the, here's the blessing for you this morning. If you're truly a child of God, if you're truly His, if you've truly been born again, if you truly are soundly saved in the name of Jesus Christ, when you sin, and you will, and when you majorly sin, and you might, and when you get so far out of, out of God's reach, it may seem, God is going to sovereignly work in your life to preserve you and to bring you back. He's not going to let you be, 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 be going beyond His sovereign grasp to bring you back. Now, it may be painful. It may be trying. It may be the last thing you want to endure. Nobody here wants to endure the sovereign hand of God's discipline. Nobody here wants to be hit by God's two-by-four. But it may just exactly be what God is using sovereignly in your life to bring you back to Him. And the reason He's doing it, we must remember, is because He really does love us. He really does love us. He's doing it because He loves us that much. Now, we're going to cover a lot of ground this morning, and so we're not going to read every word of every chapter. I'm going to fill in the gaps. But what I want us to do is I want us to see this sovereignty of God in action unfold over three chapters in the life of David, his true child. So last week, as we ended chapter 13, what did we see? Absalom is fleeing for his life. He's a fugitive. He had killed Amnon, and so he had to flee. And so... He has to be gone five whole years before he's actually allowed back into the kingdom. So five years have spanned. And Absalom comes back, but his intentions as the son are not to submit to David, to not follow David's leadership, but to raise up a conspiracy, to revolt against the house of David, to basically take over the kingship. So five years have passed. And we need to remember two things about David. We, never need to, we, we can't forget these two things about David. No matter how sinful he is, he's still a man after God's own heart. And he's still the rightful king of Israel. He's the anointed one of Israel. So he deserves to be king, not because he's so good, but because God anointed him to be king, and he's still a man after God's own heart. Now, he's going to have to endure discipline. He's going to have to have the sword never depart from his house. There's going to be a lot of things David's going to have to face, but God is going to preserve David to the end, just the way he will preserve you to the end if you're truly his. Now, one thing we find out about Absalom, he's a rock star. Have you guys ever seen the cover of GQ? Have you ever seen a guy with like flowing long hair that just looks like awesome? Now, I don't have long hair. I don't think any of you guys out there have really... 
Absalom had rock star long hair. Okay, so like he could have been like the lead singer of Def Leppard or something like that. I mean, he just was this awesome guy. Now you're like, where in the world are we going with this? Why is Sean drawing attention to Absalom's long hair? The Bible draws attention to Absalom's long hair. So let's look at chapter 14, verse 25. And we will see this about Absalom. Not said about very many people in the Bible about their hair. By the way, two other people in the Bible who talked about their hair. You remember? Esau was a hairy man. And Samson. How did it go for those two guys? All right. 2 Samuel chapter 14, verse 25. Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his feet, foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it. When it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head, 200 shekels, by the king's weight. So this guy, would, his hair was so awesome, he'd cut it at the end of every year and, and weigh it to see how awesome his hair was. Okay? So he's this rock star, chiseled looks, washboard abs, GQ, just awesome hunk of a man with this long flowing hair. If you can just picture it in your mind. Now, we'll find out that his long flowing hair is his downfall later on. So be wary of anybody with long flowing hair in the Bible. But if you remember Israel, they are enamored with outward appearance. All the way back to our very first message, what did Israel look at? They looked at outward appearance. And when God chooses David, what does God say? In 1 Samuel 16, 7, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Nobody cares about the heart of Absalom in Israel. All they care about is this guy's drop dead, awesome, with long, flowing hair. He's got to be our next king. So what I want us to do is to explore four major scenes that span chapters 15 through 17. Four big scenes. So here's scene one. Scene one is the treachery of conspiracy. The treachery of conspiracy. So let's go into chapter 15. And let's read verses 1 through 12, and let's see the treachery of conspiracy. Remember, Absalom has been allowed back after the fugitive five years later. And here, let's pick up the story. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand before the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there's no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were a judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have sworn to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur and Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. 
With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor, from his city Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. First thing we see about Absalom is he amasses for himself horses. If you go back to Deuteronomy 17, no king in Israel was to amass personal horses. So he's the first king to really break that rule. But here's what Absalom does. For four years, what does he do? He stands at the city gate and he basically says, listen, you guys have a problem? Come to me because I'm the man. David the king, he's an ivory tower politician. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He's lost touch with reality. I'm the one that you need to come to. I can give you justice. I can answer your question. And so what David is doing over a four-year period, I mean Absalom's doing over a four-year period, is he's creating an atmosphere in Israel of distrust. Basically saying, you can't trust David. Trust me. I'm, a, I'm an everyman. I'm down in the trenches. David, he's distant. He's way off there worrying about king things, but I'm your man. And so after four years, day after day, he's basically being a politician. He's positioning himself to take over the kingdom as king. And verse 6 tells it all. What does verse 6 say? Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. He stole their hearts. In other words, he duped them. He fooled them. He pulled the wool over their eyes. He had manipulated the political atmosphere to where the entire nation would now be turned against David and now siding with Absalom. Now let's see scene two, the trial of exile. Word gets back to David that his son is conspiring and then his son has gone to Hebron, where actually David was first anointed king by the tribes of Israel. And he has basically positioned himself as king to take over. And so here's what David does. David has to flee Jerusalem, which is amazing. Think about David for a moment. He's the man who killed Goliath. He's the one that slew the Philistines. He's the one that brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. He is the one that had the mighty men. And here he is having to hightail it out of the capital city of Jerusalem for fear of being assassinated by his very own son. So David has to flee in exile. But we see David's true heart in chapter 15, verses 24 through 26. So let's look down there at verses 24 and 26, chapter 15. And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of, covenant, uh, the ark of God until the people had passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. The priests have an idea. We can't leave Jerusalem without the Ark of the Covenant. So we better bring the Ark of the Covenant with us. And David says, no. I am not going to use the Ark of the Covenant as a good luck charm. Take it back to Jerusalem. And, and the priests are like, what in the world are you doing, David? We need God's furniture with us. If we don't have God's furniture, we're toast. And David said, it's not about God's furniture. It's about God's favor. It's not a piece of furniture that I need. 
it's the Lord's favor. And so what David was tempted to do with the Ark of the Covenant was somehow use it as a a lucky charm type thing to bargain with God. Maybe you don't have an Ark of the Covenant in your life, but have you ever tried to bargain with God? Have you ever tried to use God in some type of way? Maybe you've tried to get God in your good graces. Maybe you've said things like this, God, if I go to church this week and sing really loud, then you're obligated to bless me the rest of the week. Or maybe you've said something like this, God, if I sow my seed into this televangelist ministry, you're obligated to give me my, my blessings. Or God, if I just do this one good deed at work and help this person at work, you are obligated to give me a raise and give me my blessings. How often do you play games with God by saying, God, if I, if I just do this thing, then you're obligated to do this. And we think that we can somehow obligate God to do something for us. And David's not going to play that game. David knows what? David knows this. Back when Nathan the prophet confronted him, he should have been killed. What's the penalty for adultery? What's the penalty for murder? Death. And God spared David's life. So David knows, I should have died at the hand of God. And David basically says this, if I go into exile and I lose everything, and my son becomes the next king of Israel, and my kingdom stripped away from me, that doesn't matter because God has the sovereign right to do it, and he owes me nothing. He owes me nothing. I'm going to submit myself to God's sovereign right to be God. It's very similar to what... Paul writes in Romans 9, quoting Moses. Romans 9, 15 through 16. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. David understood this. He understood God has a right to be sovereign, and he doesn't appeal. He doesn't say to God, hey, listen, God, here's my resume. If you you forgot God, here's my resume. I'm the great shepherd of Israel. I'm the king. I'm the anointed one. Look at all the Philistines I've killed. Do you remember Goliath, God? Look, Look, God, you owe me. I shouldn't be going into exile because, God, you owe me. That's not what he does. He knows that God owes him nothing. Now, do you have that same attitude sometimes before God? God, you owe me. So here's my resume. Here's all the things I've done for you, God. God, I've done all these things for you, so now you owe me. As if God owes us something. Let me just remind you all of one thing. What does God owe us? Every single one of us in this room, God owes us hell. He owes us nothing. He owed David death. And for God to be gracious is a great act of mercy. And David knows that. And David is going to say very, very startlingly in verse 26. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. Let God do to me what seems good to him. Now, can you say that after you've sinned? Let God's discipline be however God wants to discipline me. What do we often say? God, let this be on my timetable. Let this be the way I would want it to work out. Let this be uh, something that's not going to make me too uncomfortable. God, please don't discipline me in this way. God, here's the way you've got to do it. 
And we tell God what he should do. And David says, no, let God do to me what seems right. And the only thing David does is says, listen, I know I should die. I'm rightfully going into exile because I've sinned. And if God keeps me there, God has every right to do that. And if God brings me back, he has every right to do that. The one thing I'm not going to do is I'm not going to say, God, you owe me and try to get God in my good graces. So he understands the sovereignty of God, that God has the right to do what God's going to do. But here's the thing that God does. In God's sovereignty, he does something gracious to David. He gives David three trusty friends. Zadok, Abiathar, and Hushai. You'd love to have those three friends, right? You ever had a friend? I wish I had a friend named Hushai. Now you may be like, well, who, who are these guys? Well, here's what happens. Zadok and Abiathar are the priests, and they go back to Jerusalem, and they're basically the spies. The behind-the-scenes priests that nobody would know about, but they're the eyes and ears. And then Hushai, we'll find out a little bit later about Hushai, he's used by God to actually deliver David. So God does, in the kindness of his discipline, bring friends into David's life to surround him. And God may do that to you. Here's the thing that often happens. Think about your life for a moment. Have there been times in your life when you've sinned, or you're going through a struggle, or you're going through a problem, and God brings a friend at just the right time to say the right word at the right moment, and you did not like to hear it at that moment, you did not want that friend to come to you in that moment, but when you look back on it, it was the exact right thing that needed to be said in that right moment. God in his sovereignty, in his grace, when you're down here, he will bring friends to bring you up here. In his grace. To speak the truth in love, as Ephesians 4.15 says. Rather, speak the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who's the head into Christ. So God will bring a friend into your life at times to speak the truth. I don't want to hear the truth, but he will speak the truth in love. And it's often like what Proverbs 27.6 says. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Have you ever been wounded by a friend? It's a good thing if they're a true friend because the wound is meant to bring you to repentance and to speak truth into your life. And God does that with David. He brings him three good friends. Now, let's look at scene three, the travesty of betrayal. Now, if God gave David three good friends in chapter 15 and chapter 16, we're going to see the exact opposite. Three men who betray David. Three men who betray David. Now, I'm not going to go through all this because we're, going to, we're just going to briefly go through chapter 16. Ziba is the first one to betray David. Now, you have to say, well, who's Ziba? Do you guys remember Mephibosheth from a few weeks ago? Mephibosheth was Jonathan's son, the, the son who was crippled in his feet. And remember, David blessed him and invited him into the family and let him sit at the table and basically gave him all of Saul's inheritance, that Mephibosheth. Ziba was Mephibosheth's um, counselor or his, his servant, his right-hand man. And so Ziba comes into David and says, Listen, David, Mephibosheth is on Absalom's side. He's betrayed you. And David's shocked. Why in the world would Mephibosheth betray me when I was so kind to him? And so basically in a snap decision, David disinherits Mephibosheth because he believes the lie of Ziba. Ziba tells a bold-faced lie to David about Mephibosheth. The second man is Shimei. Go back and read chapter 16, and Shimei is a cranky man who basically um, blurts out F-bombs to David and throws rocks at him. David's kind of coming with his crew, and, and Shimei's out there, and it says he kept cursing over and over David, cursing him and cursing him, throwing rocks at him. 
And, Ab- and um, Abishai, David's bodyguard, wants to go kill Shimei. And David says, don't kill him. Let him keep cussing at me. And you're like, well, why in the world would David want this guy to keep cussing at him? Because here's what David thinks. This guy could be right. He could be sent of the Lord to come curse me because of my sin, and I don't want to get in the way of what God may sovereignly be doing. So let this guy cuss me out. He may be from God. Now, we may not comprehend why God would send somebody to cuss us out, but in David's mind, he's thinking, this could be from God. So <clears throat> you've got Ziba who betrays David. You've got Shimei who cusses out David and throws rocks at him. But the worst thing is he's betrayed by his most trusted counselor, The third man to betray him is Ahithophel. Now, who's Ahithophel? Ahithophel is Bathsheba's grandfather. Now, he was David's most trusted counselor, and he switches sides. He goes with Absalom. And we don't know why Ahithophel switches sides. It could be that in his mind, he just can't get over the fact that David killed his daughter-in-law's husband and committed adultery with um, his granddaughter-in-law, Bathsheba. And what he does, Ahithophel, and I have to be kind of rated G here because we have kids in the audience. But if you remember, from 2 Samuel eleven twelve through 13, let's just, it'll be up on the screen. Let's read this again. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. Here's what Ahithophel convinces Absalom to do. Absalom, go make this public bed on top of the roof of the palace, that same place where David saw Bathsheba bathing. And here's what you're going to do, Absalom. I want you to steal all of David's wives, and I want you to go up there, and I want you to engage in activity so that all of Israel can see what you're doing. Now, that's pretty wicked, and it's prophesied right there. David, you did this act in secret. Your son's going to do it in front of everybody. And so not only is it a sexually immoral act out there in front of everybody on top of the roof, but it is a way of of, of Absalom saying to David, listen, I'm cutting all ties. There is no going back. I am putting the nail in the coffin. This is an outright rebellion against you as king. I have stolen your wives. I am doing this publicly. There's no turning back. I am revolting against you. And Ahithophel is the one that convinces Absalom to do that. Now, let's look at scene four, the triumph of salvation. There's something brewing behind the scenes. David has to flee, but he sends back Hushai, his best friend. And Hushai goes back to Absalom and basically says to Absalom, listen, I'm no longer in David's camp. I'm going to pledge allegiance to your camp. And so Absalom's faced with the choice as as the quote-unquote new king now. He's got two counselors, Ahithophel and Hushai. Who's he going to listen to? Is he going to listen to Ahithophel, David's old counselor, or is he going to listen to Hushai, David's best friend? And so David sends Hushai back to basically confuse things. And so let's pick up in chapter 15. Let's go back to chapter 15 and look at verse 31. Chapter 15, verse 31, David prays something. This is what he prays. And it was told to David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. 
So what David prays here is he says, listen, this guy's betrayed me. This guy's gone against me. What I want you to do, God, is any type of counsel he gives to Absalom, any type of, of military strategy, anything he gives, please let it come to foolishness. Don't let it be listened to. Let him become a fool. And that's exactly what happens when Hushai comes in to the scene. So let's pick up in chapter 16. And I know we're kind of jumping around here, but chapter 16, verses 15 through 21. This is kind of masterful, the way Hushai comes in and, and basically positions himself as the new counselor. Hopefully you're tracking all these names. Now Absalom and all the people and the men of Israel came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel with him. And when Hushai, that's the archite, David's friend, now remember Hushai's been sent back there to kind of be a spy, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, long live the king, long live the king. Now, that's kind of cryptic. What does he say? Long live the king. Well, which king is he talking about? Is he talking about David or is he talking about Absalom? I think Hushai is talking about David, but he's trying to play a trick on on Absalom because Absalom is so wrapped up in himself. Listen to what else he says. And Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, No, for whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. Who's he talking about? David or Absalom? It's cryptic. So what happens here is Hushai gets into the inner circle. And here's what Absalom wants to do. In chapter 17, Absalom wants to go kill David. Let's just go revolt. And so he goes to Ahithophel, his first counselor. And Ahithophel says, listen, here's what we've got to do. We've got to strike hard, strike fast. Let's take 12,000 men. Let's go in and do it right now. Let's do it right now. We can do it. David's probably hiding out. We can get intel. Let's go get David right now. And so Absalom says, okay, that's Ahithophel's That's Ahithophel's counsel. Remember, what did David pray? Ahithophel's counsel would be frustrated. And so Absalom says, let me me get a second opinion. Let's go to Hushai. Let's see what Hushai has to say. So let's pick up Hushai's advice. So let's go into chapter 17, verses 5 through 14. So David's, I mean, Absalom's getting a second opinion here about how to go kill David. He kind of likes Ahithophel's advice, but he wants to get a second opinion. Let's see what Hushai has to say. Remember Hushai's David's friend. He's a spy. He's in there orchestrating things behind the scenes to make sure that David uh, doesn't get hurt. Verse 5, chapter 17. Then Absalom said, Call Hushai, the archite also, and let us hear what he has to say. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Thus as Ahithophel spoken, shall we do what he says? If not, you speak. So I want your opinion. Should we do what he says? Hushai said to Absalom, This time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. Hushai said, You know that your father and his men are mighty men, and that they're enraged like a bear, robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is an expert in war. He will not spend the night with the people. Behold, even now he's hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place. As soon as some of his people fall at first attack, whoever hears it, there will be a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. And he goes on and on and on to explain how Ahithophel's plan is not good and how his plan's better. Then go down to verse 14. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. 
Now, verse 14 is crucial there because what does it say? No matter how great a politician Hushai was, no matter how convincing Hushai was, no matter how slick in negotiations he was, and no matter how good of a counselor he was, what's the real issue behind the scenes? What does verse 14 say? The Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel. So who's doing it? The Lord ordained it. In the Hebrew, that really means he determined, he predestined, he decreed. God, behind the scenes, had appointed that they would not listen to Ahithahel. Job 5.12 says this about God. He frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. Proverbs 21, 30-31. No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. You see, here's the thing that's interesting about this whole thing. It's so ordinary. You know, God is sovereignly working here in ordinary means. There's no blinding light. There's no theophany appearing of an angel. There's no um, cloud and smoke. It's just the simple behind-the-scenes things that God's doing in the normal, ordinary events of life. And that's often how things happen. Maybe this has happened to you, where you've gone through a period of life, and you look back, and you can definitely see the hand of God working, and you know it was God. You just know it was God. There's no other explanation that God was at work. Now, there wasn't anything flashy. There wasn't anything huge. It was just simply God sovereignly working through these means to bring you back to himself. Now, God's sovereignly been working through all these chapters. David realizes, I can't put God in a box. I'm not going to bargain with God. He's sovereign. God is sovereignly working behind the scenes to, to, to bring Hushai to the front to frustrate the plans of Ahithophel so that Absalom will listen to that. And here's the rest of the chapter. Hushai goes to the two priests. Remember the two other friends? Hushai goes to Zadok and Abiathar and says, hey, here's the plan. They've, they've bought it. Go back and tell David what the plan is so that he can hightail it out of there and escape. And that's exactly what happens. The two priests go back. They tell David, here's the plan that Hushai came up with. David was able to escape. There, there was no reason for him to be caught by Absalom. And here's even what's more tragic. Ahithophel goes home and hangs himself and commits suicide because nobody listened to his advice. Now, here's the issue. Does David deserve to be punished? Yes. Does David deserve to be killed? Yes. Is David suffering for his sin? Yes. Where is he? He's in exile. But what is God doing to his wayward child? He is sovereignly working behind the scenes to preserve David, to save David, to make sure that David makes it to the end. And God is doing the same thing for his children this morning. If you're in a period of sin and you're way out here in exile, God is sovereignly working to get you back. Now, again, it may be painful, it may be hard, but his hand of grace is bringing you back. Now, the question then becomes, how is this all possible? Is God sovereignly doing this in our lives because he owes it to us? Absolutely not. God does not owe this to us. What do we deserve? Just like David, we deserve death. Just like David, we deserve exile. But there's one thing I skipped over that I want to show you that's very, very important about how this whole thing can happen. So go with me, if you will, back to chapter 15 and look at verse 30, and it will pop off the page to you. And it should pop off the page to you. 
This is in the midst of David and his family and everybody leaving Jerusalem to exile. They leave the Temple Mount area, the palace area. They cross down the Kidron Valley, and here's where they go. Verse 30. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. David is crying tears of anguish because in his mind, everything's been lost. His son has betrayed him. His friends have betrayed him. The people have betrayed him. He's going into exile, and he goes up to the Mount of Olives and cries. Can you think of another son of David that goes up to the Mount of Olives and cries because he's about to go into exile and drops of blood like sweat come down off of him? Can you think of another one? The son of David, the true king of Israel that was betrayed by a friend that went up the Mount of Olives just hours before he was going to experience the ultimate abandonment, Jesus Christ. Let me draw your attention to Luke chapter 22, 39 through 44. Jesus, he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and he prayed, and he sweat, and he cried, because he knew in just a few moments he would experience the full brunt of God's wrath against sin as he was dying in our place, experiencing spiritual exile being abandoned from the father because of our sin david went up the mount of olives and cried because his kingdom was being torn from him but david was a sinful man david was suffering for his own sin david was paying the price for his own sin but jesus didn't pay the price for his own sin because he had no sin he paid the price for our sin because our sin is what put him on the cross and so Jesus is there hanging on that cross in spiritual exile, being separated from the Father because of our sin, crying out in anguish. And then they put him in a tomb, and three days later he sprung from that tomb, and he rose victorious over death and sin. And so how can God sovereignly work to preserve you as a child? When you sin, it's because it was on that cross that Jesus paid for your sin. It was on that cross that Jesus purchased you out of your bondage and brought you into God's family. The reason that God can sovereignly preserve you as his child is because Jesus, just like David, went to the Mount of Olives and cried, and cried sweats of t- blood, like drops of uh, blood, sweat, not for his sin, but for ours. He purchased us as his very own. So I want us to kind of wrap up what we've looked at over the past few weeks. We've been kind of progressively going through the the consequences of David's sin with Bathsheba. And here's some truths we need to remember. Number one, sin 
is offensive to a holy God. All the way back to what David did in Bathsheba and Uriah, it was offensive to a holy God. We also saw in Psalm 51 that we need to confess and repent of our sins. We need to own up to our sins. We need to let our sins be known to God and confess that. And then we also saw saw that God absolutely forgives all of our sins through the blood of the cross. He forgives our sins from first to last. We can count upon that. But you may have to face the consequences of those sins. And those consequences may be difficult. It could be God's hand of discipline in the consequences of your sins to bring you back to himself. And that hand of discipline may be heavy, and that hand of discipline may be painful, but it's a hand of love that God is bringing you back to himself. And God's not doing it out of, dis- out of vengeance. He's doing it because he loves us. And here's the bottom line. If you're truly a child of God, you can absolutely count on the fact that God will sovereignly preserve you to the end and bring you back. You are never so far out of the reach of a loving God that he can't grab you back and bring you to himself. But here's the problem. Sometimes in the grabbing, God may yank you. God may spank you. But here's the end product. Where are you now? You're back in his arms. You're back in his fold. And I would much rather be in the arms of a loving and disciplining God than out on my own experiencing the full weight of all of my consequences against sin. And God is sovereign to do that. Is God doing that because we're so good? Is God doing that because he's obligated to do that? Is God doing that because somehow he owes us? No, God is doing that because he's God and he has every right to do it. So we need to simply rest in his sovereign mercy to do that. And the greatest display of his sovereign mercy is the cross. Anytime you doubt God's love for you, just look back at the cross and realize it was there that Jesus took all of your sin past, present, and future, in his body, on the cross, paid for it, died and rose again, that you might have life. And because Jesus suffered, and because Jesus was abandoned, and because Jesus was forsaken, it's a promise to you that you will never be abandoned, you will never be forsaken, because Christ did it in your place. You have a loving Heavenly Father that welcomes you back. You will never experience spiritual exile, because Jesus did. You may experience spiritual discipline, but never exile. And the discipline may be heavy, but it's not forever. And God's ultimately doing it because he loves you. And so as wayward children, maybe there's some wayward children here this morning. And only you know who you are. And maybe there's some in this room that are in a period of rebellion against God. You're walking away from God. You're, You're throwing your fist up at God. You're in a habitual pattern of sin against God. And you are a true child of God. You know you're a Christian. I'm not talking to lost people here. I'm talking to true Christians here. You are far away from God. God desires to bring you back. And you may be in the period of the worst discipline of your life, but realize God's doing it as an act of love to bring you back to himself. And so some of you here this morning that are true children of God need to receive that discipline and repent and come back home. And the promise is if you come back home, you find the father, just like the prodigal son. He runs to meet you and receive you and celebrate over your repentance. He will bring you back because he loves you. And he proved that love by sending Jesus to die on the cross. So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. And as your heads are bowed, I just want you to think about the sovereign mercy of a loving God. 
His discipline, His love, His grace. And however you need to respond to Him this morning, would you take the time this morning to respond? Don't let this moment go by without responding to the Word preached and the Holy Spirit evident in this place. We're thankful that you are a father. And like a good father, you discipline your children. And Father, you're disciplining us because you love us, not because you're mad at us or because you're being mean to us, but because you truly love us. And sometimes discipline, Father, is the only way to get us back because we are so stubborn. We are so rebellious. And Lord, we see a picture of David who just resigned himself to your sovereignty and said, Lord, let, let, let you do what seems best to you. And Father, may we be in that posture this morning. We would all just in our hearts say, Lord, would you do what seems best to you? Not what seems best to us or not what we may want, but Lord, what you desire and what you want. As Jesus prayed, let your will be done, not ours. And we are so thankful, Jesus, that you went to Calvary on the cross to die for our sins. And before that, you went to the Mount of Olives. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, you prayed and you sweat drops of blood and you agonized over the fact that you were going to be abandoned. And Jesus, we're thankful that you were abandoned on the cross. You were forsaken on the cross. You were exiled on the cross so that we would never have to experience that. We would never have to be exiled. We'd never have to be abandoned. We'd never have to be forsaken because you experienced that for us. And when we trust you by faith, Jesus, we know that we get all of your record put to us and all of our sin put to you so that we're accepted by God the Father as children. So Lord, if there's any wayward children in this room this morning that are walking away, drifting away, slipping away, rebelling away, would you, Father, do what seems best to you in your sovereignty to bring them back because you love them? And Father, again, as I'm even thinking about this, thank you for the friends that you bring into our lives that speak truth with love. And maybe we need to be wounded by a friend this week so that we can repent. So Father, what I'm asking is this. We just resign ourselves and trust in your sovereignty to work. We know that you're a sovereign God and you work in mysterious ways. We just want to just submit ourselves to that. That you are a great God and a merciful God. Would we just be the people you've called us to be? And thank you most of all for the cross. And we pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.